no secret that I love snow. Uh, you might not, but I, I just dig it. It's so great. I only love people more than snow. So that's how much I love it. I love snow. I love people more. Do you love people? I mean, like, can you think of a person that you so deeply love today that whatever would come, you'd actually lay your life down for them? You love someone so deeply that if it came to it, you'd do anything and everything you could to protect them. You know, maybe it's a grandparent or a parent, maybe a sibling or a spouse, maybe a child or a friend, someone that no matter what would come, you'd say, I would protect and defend. In fact, if I saw them being harmed physically or mentally, if I knew they were being emotionally traumatized or, or sexually traumatized, I would take the gloves off and I would do things with my hands, I would say things with my mouth that probably would never come out of me any other time, but something would so rise up within me that I would take whoever down. Do you know that kind of love? The kind of love that grabs you that deeply that you will do whatever it takes to protect your people? You pull the gloves off, you do whatever it takes, you're going to throw down because nobody's touching your people. You know that feeling? One of, the, one of the ways that we defend people, there's all these categories of why we might defend the people we love, but one of the things that we don't often think about in defending the people we love is defending them spiritually. So we're composite beings made up of emotions, mental capacity, relationships, physical. We're, we're all this, but we also have souls that will never die. We are spiritual beings. And if someone you love was being spiritually abused, what would you do? You might think, well, I never even thought about that category before. I mean, it's kind of freaky to think. I mean, part of the reason is because we don't think about the fact that we're spiritual beings. And maybe there'd be some wacky situation where some weird cult brainwashes someone you love and it would cause you to rise up and beat somebody down. Oftentimes, spiritual abuse, I'm going to use that term, and maybe you go, wait, I've never even thought of this. But spiritual abuse can take place, and it is incredibly subtle. It, it, it could be a cult kind of situation, but that's probably not what most of us are going to deal with. There is a way that people can subtly bend truth to hurt and harm people's souls. It may not be something you've thought about before, but it's actually what Peter is going to deal with in this section of Scripture that we're looking at today. So if you have your Bibles, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2. It's towards the end of your Bible. It's in the middle of his second letter that he writes to Christians. We're in this sermon series called Fight to the Finish, which is about the fact that it's going to be hard to follow Jesus. It doesn't always, it isn't always easy but leaning into the fight, leaning into it, growing through the difficulty, we arrive to the end. There will be a day where we see Jesus face to face, and the victory will be sweeter than the videos you see before each sermon of victory that people have. Much sweeter will be the victory that when you see Jesus face to face, and he says, well done, you fought to the end. Your faith is effective and productive. It made a difference in the lives of people. Peter wants us to be prepared 
for that. And the section of Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 2, is honestly one of those sections where it's like, can I call in sick today? You know that feeling where you just don't want to go to your workplace because what you have to do, the assignment you have, is not a fun one? This chapter of Scripture is not fun, and it's not easy to understand, and it is hard-hitting, direct, in your face. In some ways, it's Peter, the Apostle Peter, on a rant, and it's because he is seeing the people that he loves being spiritually abused. So he takes the gloves off. The tone of his language in this second letter is urgency because he knows these might be his final words to people. And there's a sense that there's a sleepness over the church of Jesus Christ that Peter sees, and he, he sees that the enemy, the competition, the difficulty, the abuse, is coming from within the church. He's not addressing in this second chapter people outside of the church of Jesus Christ that are bringing hardship on Christians. He's dealing with people that are in the church, that are praying, serving, singing. They're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, and he's seeing what they're doing, and he knuckles up, and he goes, do you want to go? That's the context of this chapter. So buckle up. 2 Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has been long hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if God rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, a righteous lot living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority, bold and arrogant. They're not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings, yet even angels, though they're stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they don't understand. They're like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. Like animals, they too will perish. Verse 13, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. 
Their idea of pleasure is carousing in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasure while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. They left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bazar, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained that prophet's madness. These people are springs without water. They're a mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. They mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are entangled in it again and are overcome. They're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, that it, to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. A sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Boy, that's encouraging. You're glad you came to church today, right? Oh, happy story. This is a great passage of Scripture. Do you understand now why I'm like, hey, uh, let's skip this one. I'm terribly sick. Let somebody else preach this. This is harsh. I mean, the tone, right? Do you hear the tone of his voice? He calls them an accursed brood. The harm that they have put on people, they're going to get that harm on top of themselves. He says they're going to get paid back for this harm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. Why is he so ticked? I mean, I answered it. He loves people. He's seeing what's taking place to people he loves. So here's Peter, and Peter's a sailor. He's kind of a rough guy. He starts to follow Jesus. Now, if you read Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus is a carpenter. He's a tough guy, probably tougher than what most of us think. But he's also gentle and kind and gracious. Peter, this sailor, hangs out with Jesus, the carpenter, and is changed by him. And, and they live life together for three plus years. And Peter gets to see eyewitness account of how Jesus treats people and the truth that he speaks over people. He experiences this incredible truth from Jesus. And Peter watches Jesus die and rise again. And Peter is instrumental in starting the church of Jesus Christ. And Peter is just a year away from being crucified as a martyr of Jesus Christ. And he's watching what's happening in the church. He's watching what's happening to children of God. And he's seeing that people are being spiritually abused by those who twist the truth. He takes the glove off and he rants. And he, he's punching hard. Now, who are these people? Who are these people he's talking so directly against? Verse 1 tells us. He's talking about false teachers who are among them. He's not talking about false teachers, other people, other religions, people that are persecuting. He's talking about in the church, in the small groups, in their communities, there are people who are pretending to be Christians right in their midst, inside the church, who are doing a number of things. I want you to hear this again. 
I'll just point it out from verse 1. He's saying these people secretly induce destructive heresies. They're twisting the truth, even denying the Christ who bought them, who paid for their sins. Verse 3, in their greed, these teachers exploit you with fabricated, made-up stories. Verse 10, they have a corrupt desire of the flesh. They despise authority. They are bold and arrogant. Verse 12, blaspheme in matters they don't understand. They're like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct. Verse 13, their idea of, idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. It's a part of how they live. They just do it in front of everybody, and they don't care that it runs directly against how God wants us to live. Verse 14, eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. Verse 18, they mouth empty, boastful words. They appeal to the lustful desires of our flesh. They entice people. Verse 19, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of depravity. Who are these people he's talking about? Here's how I describe it. False teachers are individuals who bend the truth. They exploit weak people. They seduce unstable people. They pursue financial gain or personal gain. It's all motivated by, I'm going to pursue something for myself, not attention and glory to Christ. And this is so subtle. The, the picture he's painting is really the picture of an animal that's got one thing on their mind. And that animal uses their nose to sniff out and find anything they can to advance their own purposes, their own pleasures. This is subtle. This is sly. This is greedy. This is promising freedom, telling stories that are slick and smooth and clever. And it's oh so subtle, Peter says. When you pull back the curtain and you see these people for who they are, it's all a sham. It's all made up. It's not true. When you pull it back and you look at it, when you lean into it and try to test it, there's no divine power behind it. There's no truth really behind it. It's all this slick, smooth, clever storytelling. Peter has firsthand experience with the living Christ, that which is real and authentic, and he sees this abuse taking place in the church of Jesus Christ and he takes off the gloves and says, no, this isn't going to happen under my watch. And he knows when he writes this that people are going to read this. So the way this would be written, it would be written in such a way and it would travel from church to church throughout Christianity, and people would pick up the letter and read it publicly just like I just did. And he knew that there were people that were going to hear these words. These false teachers were right there sitting in the congregation. He wanted them to hear it because he wanted them to know, I see you. You might think you're sly. You might think you're pulling one over, but I see you. And if I see you, God sees you. He wanted them to know that. He wanted them to know that what they were doing was wrong. And it wasn't going without being noticed. Now, why are these false teachers so dangerous? What's their tactic that makes it so dangerous? It is so subtle, 
It's something that we don't talk about much, but why is it so dangerous? And here's how I would describe the danger of false teaching. False teachers use Christian vocabulary, but they don't use the Bible as the dictionary. So, so I, I try to explain that to you. They use Christian vocabulary, but not the Bible. So, so here's what I mean. You can throw out the word God. I can use the word God. I can use the word sin. I can use the word forgiveness. I can use the word resurrection. I can use the word peace. I can use the word God loves you. I can use phrases, language, and I can bend those words and phrases to mean anything I want them to mean. Unless I have a dictionary that defines within context what that word actually means. Without the Bible as a dictionary, people can take the word God, Jesus, prayer, Bible, salvation, forgiveness, and say anything they want to say. But when you run it up against the truth of Scripture, that becomes the defining moment for each word. The danger of false teachers is they take words, passages, and ideas from the Bible, and they bend them just oh so subtly to say whatever they want them to mean for personal benefit. So let me give you an example of this. They're going to use Bible in a subtle way. So Exodus 34 is a, a passage that we've talked about here in our congregation. Exodus 34, listen to this. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I mean, isn't that the God we all know? We talk about who God is. God is slow to anger and abounding in love and compassionate and gracious. That paints a picture of who God is. A part of his character is that he is loving and kind and compassionate, but that's only a part of his character. There's more to him than just God is forgiving and God is loving and God is kind and God is compassionate. But so easy to maybe miss the rest of the verse because the rest of the verse tells a little bit more about God's character. It says, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. If I want to paint a picture of just a God who's loving, forgiving, and he's just a big marshmallow, and he hugs everyone and makes you feel good, and it doesn't matter what you do, then I use just a part. If I want to show you who he is, I'm going to show you, okay, he is just in all his ways, and he is loving and kind. It's both. There are some false teachers that want to show you that God is only a God of wrath, and he's just mean, and he's just angry, and he, he's against you, and he's going to discipline you, and he's going to be harsh with you. If they only want to show you a part, they pull out that scripture, and they use that. Or, let me show you that he's loving and kind. But he's both. He is both incredibly, cosmically love, forgiveness, peace, grace, mercy, compassionate, but he's also a God who is holy and just and doesn't look the other way at evil. False teachers just want to tell a part of the story, not the whole story, and they bend and subtly use the same words, the same phrases, the same parts of the Bible without the entire picture. Beware of those 
who just use Christian language, but they don't use the Bible. Because if you learn to love only half of God, if you learn just a part of who He is, not the whole thing, at some point you'll begin to see more of who He is, and you'll start to think, wait, I was never taught this before. Well, is this a new teaching? No. You just were only taught a little bit, not the whole story. And when that happens, when you start to see who He really is in the fullness of His love and His justice, you could begin to doubt His character because you were misled. You could be doubt who He is because you didn't see a part of it because you weren't taught a part of it, and there's a way that is incredibly dangerous and detrimental to your soul. And that's why Peter takes his gloves off and says, I want you to know the one true and only God as recorded in Scripture. And anyone that wants to show you just a part and twists it just to show you what they want you to see so that they can gain, you lose, I'm taking the gloves off. I'm angry. That's where this is coming from. He wants to warn these false teachers that God sees them, and He takes the gloves off, partly also to get our attention, that we might see that this is not a game. Our souls are the only part of us that will live forever. This is not a game. He wants us to know there are false teachers in the church. Perhaps the most powerful verse in this whole chapter is in verse 9, so look there. Verse 9, and, and it comes at the end of a long run-on sentence that he gives. He's laying out an if-then argument from verse 4 through 9. He's laying out an if-then argument. He says, if God didn't spare angels that sin, if God didn't spare ungodly people in Noah's day but rescued Noah, if God didn't spare evil people of Sodom and Gomorrah but rescued Lot, if then, verse says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. If God sees all of this, He knows all of this, and His point is to Christians, God will protect and rescue, but He will also judge and punish he wants us to know that because that's the nature of God. He is loving and just in all His ways. That should be an encouragement to you today because if He was only just and not loving, what kind of God would He be? And if He was only loving and not just, what kind of God are you following? But He is both. So that shouldn't comfort us to go, wow, I'm so glad He's going to punish some and judge some, but not me. But you should be encouraged because He sees His children and knows that if you put your faith and trust in Him, He's going to protect you and rescue you. But if you don't care about God, if you're arrogant and pursuing evil, if you're distorting the truth of God, and you're doing that arrogantly and boldly, and you're abusing people arrogantly and boldly, the God of the universe sees that, and He's going to do something about it. That's an encouragement to us, because I don't want to follow a God who just looks the other way. 
who just sees the things I do and say, ah, Joe, it doesn't matter. That was kind of cute how you acted. No, he sees the evil of my heart and says, I will pay for that evil on the cross of Jesus Christ for you. That debt will be paid, and if you put your hope in Jesus, that debt will be removed. And now you are my child, and I will rescue you. I have rescued you, and I will protect you forever. But if you're going to be someone that says, no, I don't care about your truth, I don't care about your salvation, I don't care about your son, I don't care, and I will abuse, mistreat, do evil, and be arrogant, then you should be very afraid because our God is alive and not dead and doesn't look the other way at evil. This should be an encouragement to us, but it's also a warning to us. Now, I just want to end with something very basic, but I think is helpful to me. This, this writing that Peter is doing in this chapter is not intended to scare you, but to prepare you. It's not intended to intimidate or scared, with the only caveat being, if you today are sitting and listening to me, and you are arrogantly twisting the truth of God, and you're denying that Jesus died and rose again for your sin, but you live in the church, and you do your thing in the church, and you use Christian vocabulary, and you abuse people for your own personal game, then you should be scared right now, because God sees you. But that's not most of us. Most of us are here today and going, wait, this is a little bit crazy talk. What's going on? But this is to prepare us because Peter wants you to know the whole story, not just a piece. He wants you to know the whole story and what God has for us and the truth of who he is. So today, there are false teachers in the church of Jesus Christ. You should be aware of that. Oh, it could be here. I don't know. But I can guarantee you, I know of false teachers online. I know of false teachers on television. I know that if I go to Barnes & Noble, I could point out to you false teachers in the Christian section that are, that are there. And he wants us to be aware of that and realize that we don't have to be scared, but prepared. He wants us to know our competition. It's kind of like if you go into a football game, I was a football coach, we watched film about what was, the other team was doing not scared. I wasn't scared of our competition, but I understood what our competition was going to do so that I would be prepared to know how to win the game. He wants us to be prepared so that we can fight to the finish. And here's the simple basic truth. You will be alert to false teaching if you regularly chew on biblical truth. I mean, it's so simple. How will you know false teaching? You open up your Bible, you turn on your Bible, you read it, you study it, you say, Spirit of God, help me to understand your word. As I understand truth, I will be able to see the competition. I'll be able to see the falsehood. So whatever teaching you hear, including the teaching from me, use your Bible. Use your, that's why I say to you all the time, open up your Bibles, look at your Bible. If something I say isn't from the Bible, isn't connected to all of Scripture, then you should call me on the carpet. If you listen to somebody online or the radio or the television and something stinks like fish, it probably is dead. Lead, use your Bible, use it a couple doses a week, read, take it in, chew on the truth. And then you're prepared, and you don't have to be scared of any of this. 
But if you're the kind of Christian that just listens to anybody and never uses God's inspired word for your own personal growth, then you might get duped by somebody. I want to encourage you. Be men and women who read the Bible, who study the Bible. Purchase a copy, download a copy, get into a Bible reading plan where you're just interacting with the truth of the Bible because God will show himself to you and the truth to you as you engage with the scriptures. Peter says in the first chapter of this letter, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about all of this. We were eyewitnesses. You to pay attention, he says in verse 19, to these truths. Not ignore them, not hope that you understand the scriptures, but lean into them because above all you have to understand, he says, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, people that wrote the Bible, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why we can trust the Bible, because God was at work in 1,600 years using 40 different authors to write 66 books and put it together for us and handed it to us so that there's no contradiction in substance to this truth. And when you dig into it, you find life and hope and forgiveness and the character of God and trustworthy things that you can anchor your soul to that will help you in this fight all the way to the finish. Don't be scared of any of this stuff, but lean in, study, read. It's going to help you incredibly. Let's pray. God, thank you for using Peter to prepare us and many of us don't think about spiritual abuse. It's not a category on our minds, but it's one very close to your heart because you know that when some teaching is off by a little bit, it can land people in a totally different religion. So awaken us. Help us, God, to be men and women that read the Bible, and with your Spirit's help, guide us into all truth. Help us to be aware of the fact that there are people who twist but not be scared. And thank you that we can be confident in what you say in the Scriptures, which says that you began a good work in us and you will carry it unto completion. That this inheritance that's kept for the children of God, who through faith are shielded by God's power, until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed, our confidence is in you, in your truth, in your adoption, in your faithfulness to us. Thank you that our salvation doesn't depend on any of our works, but it depends on our faith in you, that we just believe, and as children who believe, make us students of your character, students of your kingdom, students of how you want us to live and love in this world. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.